Well, good evening. I hope everybody's ready for a good African sermon. They last an hour and 45 minutes on the norm. And if you've walked six miles to go to church, you don't want to miss your money's worth. So don't worry, it won't happen like that, guys. I see these fellows passing out here on the front. <laughs> I want to start by just thanking you as Southern Baptists and as givers for supporting our mission programs. The International Mission Board has about 4,500 to 4,800 missionaries overseas, all kinds of people speaking all kinds of languages to many, many different tribes and peoples, very well organized and set to the idea of getting missionaries in place, training them, and letting them get on with the work. Good support. When we first landed there as missionaries in Kenya, 19, oh gosh, my wife always gets the years right. I can remember the month we got there. In 74, 73, we had a two-year-old son and a five-year-old daughter. About the second month we were there, there was a meeting going on, and our little two-year-old son was barely figuring out that we were in a different part of the world, and somebody asked him, how do you like living in Kenya? And he said, we're not staying here. We're going to Africa. <laughs> you put us there. The Lord put us there. And you took good care of us. We had transport. Now, it was an old clunker, I must admit. Uh, it, it, it got us around, and we only got stuck in the mud one time that I had to get help. But it was because it was an 18-year-old car. And, but it was a good one. It worked. You got us in a decent house. We had enough money to live on well enough to do as we needed. Kids schooling, medical care. I mean, the whole picture was there so that when we got there, you were free to get on with it. Our mission gave us an assignment. Here's the kind of work you're going to do. You're going to get involved in training church leaders, mainly pastors and those who are leading churches. In many places, we didn't have people who were ready to be a pastor, but we had a congregation. And so you would work with one or two there. And I must admit, though some of you Baptists might not like it, uh, we have some very good women pastors in East Africa. And our feeling was this, if you don't have a guy to do it, you better get a gal to do it. And we trained up whoever were the leaders in that church to come forth and how to lead, to preach, to study, to dig in, and to make disciples. You made all of that possible. Giving, as you're doing this month, the Lottie Moon, the regular giving of the church, gave us good support. We felt free to get on with it. Now, the purpose of IMB is to fulfill this commission the Lord gave us to all peoples. And it uses the term, often we translate, all nations, which could be tribes. It's any groupings of people. And so we do careful studies to see what kind of folk we have that we've not really reached. Not just Baptists, but other Christian groups. And we find these tribes sometimes where fewer than 1% know anything of the gospel. And these unreached peoples, we put a focus there. 
And you see, you, you, you give us this kind of guidance from people in the states that study these things, and they, they help us realize what our picture ought to be. And that's the undercurrent that keeps us moving in the Lord's work there. And so again, I do want to thank you for being so steady in your giving and helping us so, so very much to get on with what we're supposed to be doing. Every tribe, every people. Now, we have different tribes in Kenya, about 65 tribes speaking 65 different languages. Now, you talk about a hoot. I mean, you can just slide across a river, and all of a sudden what they were saying here isn't being said that way there. It's a whole different language. So we find missionaries that are ready to go to that odd tribe. Maybe there's only 20, 30, 40,000 people in that tribe. Learn that language. And that was part of what you expected us to do. When Cherry and I got in there, they said, okay, you're going to have six months to learn Swahili. And they didn't say six months of learning. They said to learn it. In other words, get going. They worked us to death for six months, and then we had a final examination, and you kind of had to pass it. You know, it was one of those kind of things. Because they know without the language, you really are just a passerby. You're not part of the group. And the board wanted us to learn these languages properly. Cherry and I worked on Swahili. Swahili was more than just a tribal language. It was sort of the, the number two national language after English. But it was the language you needed to get along pretty much most of the country except for some of the far out tribes. So we got the language best we could. And then they worked on culture. You see, they don't want to just talk you in and say, okay, go be a missionary. No. They got us ready. And training takes some time and it takes some money. You've got to put people's lives in it for months at a time. Right now we have a program in East Africa when missionaries come because most of us Americans aren't very good at getting out into rough situations. We have a training program that's called 40 Days and 40 Nights. And it is a bush living experience that will drive you crazy. I mean, you do all your own cooking, you get all your own firewood, you got to go make your own toilets up when you get there, you got to get your tents in order, you've got to learn how to walk through about eight miles to get to the nearest village where you can buy a little bit of food, and you learn how to live from scratch. And they figure it's worth 40 days of your time to make us able to get on with it. Now, the whole purpose is what? We're not just passing through. You want us to dig in. You want us to pick out those tribes. You want us to find those unreached people and get on with it. But you've got to learn some culture, too. And that's a trick. When we were first in Kenya, we went there with the Peace Corps before we went with the mission board. Cherry and I were standing out at a bus stop, getting ready to take a bus into town. Bus pulls up beside us. There are about a six or seven year old girls in the back of the bus, and she looks down. It's probably the first white people she had ever seen in her life. I mean, we lived out in the sticks. And she slid that window open and she looked down at Cherry and started screaming. And we couldn't figure out why she's screaming. Cherry's beautiful, you know, you've seen her around here. And a lady said, those children know that white people eat black children. She shouldn't have lipstick on her lips. Culturally, 
she stopped wearing lipstick. No more children screamed for years, you see. You've got to kind of figure out how they live and what they think like and how the culture works. Who do you shake hands with? Who do you more or less bow to? Who do you know you don't touch their hands when they come to you? It can be embarrassing sometimes. Somebody going to a house and a woman comes getting ready to serve you a cup of tea and she's coming in on her knees. And you want to say, ah, stand up, stand up, don't bow down in front of me. You know, that's no good. No. You learn how to accept how they do things. You learn how to put up with a family that's got 20 or 30 wives in the family. Now, you ladies may think that's terrible. You men know it's terrible. It was quite common. We knew a man that had 65 wives. He even proposed to one of his granddaughters one time because he didn't know she was a granddaughter of his. You get used to that kind of thing. You've got to get into those cultures and realize you're not there to change culture, but the Lord can change it over a period of time when people come to really know him. Now, see, that's what you've made possible. You make it possible for us to go out there and not just to hang out, not just to kind of wander through for 15 or 20 years, get it down, learn the language, figure out a bit of the culture so that you can get along there and get with it. Absolutely get with it. Now, have you ever found that the church here is giving you a list of possibilities of things to do? There's some feeding that needs to be done. There's some local ministries that need to be done. There are ways that you can serve people in this community. There's ways you can take a mission project. Now, I know what happens. A lot of times I listen to that list and I think, well, now, who, who's going to go do it? It's always my turn. And each of us needs to learn to say that. It's always my turn. If the Lord is waving a flag in front of you of some little thing that you don't think is so terribly, terribly important, don't just look around and say, oh gosh, I'm sure somebody will take care of that. It's always my turn if the Lord's pushing a little bit. It's always your turn when he's opening a door for you when he's pushing you just slightly. I want to read a long passage tonight. It's about a man who really jumped to it and got with it. It's in Acts chapter 9, if you wish to follow. Verse 1, and it's about a good long passage, but it's a picture here of Paul or Saul and Ananias. In Acts chapter 9, now... Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. 
The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now here comes the hero. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying and he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight. He got up, was baptized, took food, And was strengthened, and for several days he was with the disciples in Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Now, Ananias Ananias was just an ordinary guy. We don't know if he was pastor of that group in Damascus. We don't know if he was a deacon. We don't know if he was a back seat, front seat member, if he really got into Sunday school or was in kit. We have no idea. But we do know this, that the Lord wanted to use him, and he immediately began to say, no, wait a minute. It's not my turn. What's the church going to say? If they hear that I went out there and tried to help that old so-and-so that's causing so much trouble. He's against us. He's evil. He's not one of us. And what about my family? He's liable to kill me. Lord, this is a dangerous situation. And my goodness, Lord, don't you know that everybody's going to talk about me in a bad way? They're going to say, remember, we had a nice knit community here. Look at him. He went out to the bad guys. Now, what we have here is the kind of situation many of us can be in. Where the Lord is looking for something different to happen, something you would never dream about, something that you would sit back and say, that's not even on my bucket list. I'm not going to get involved in that. That's so, no. He's going to say, it's your turn, buddy. And Ananias is saying, wait, wait, wait. Let's look at all the dangerous things that are part of that. Cherry and I faced some of those things as we realized the Lord really wanted us in Kenya. 
we're going to be away from family. Our kids, they go to college, they're going to have to be 8,000 miles away from us. And what happens if dad gets sick? And what happens, and what happens, and you can dream all this kind of stuff. And Ananias was having that go through his head, and he was discussing it with the Lord, and he was saying, Lord, are you out of your mind? And the Lord said, go. He's expecting you. You see, it's my turn always to obey. Now, the thing with Ananias is that he touched the life of a person who completely flipped the world upside down. Saul went to the Gentiles. Hey, that's 99.9% of us in this room. He went out beyond the Jews as a Jew. He was the one who led the battle on into Europe and in other parts of Eastern, of Eastern Asia there, of Western Asia there. The Apostle Paul, Ananias, an ordinary guy, said, Okay, Lord, it's my turn. It's my turn. Now, what does it take to do that? Well, first of all, Ananias was a man of faith. He wasn't just a member of that congregation. It's quite obvious the Lord wanted to use him as the trainer of his big disciple, Paul. But Ananias trusted. He walked. He was with the Lord. Obviously, he was a man of God. So it starts off with faith. If we're going to be obedient, the first thing is faith. If the Lord's saying do it, you can do it. I've told you of the time my son jumped off a roof into my hands when I said jump. He knew I would catch him. And if he had stuck his hands up and said no, he would have hit the light, hit the electricity going across the top of that wire and killed himself. He obeyed like that. So faith allows us to walk with God, to trust, to obey. But there's faith and there's also then a flip that comes in this. Everything gets upside down. You're planning your life. I work on mine. I try to do my plans. I try to get things organized. And every once in a while now the Lord's going to say, no, just wait a minute. Let's do it this way. And you're going to say, hold on. You've been working with me for 20 years to get into this kind of plan, Lord. Are you sure? What in the world are you talking about? And he's saying, it's going to be just the opposite. Your comfort zone, forget it. The kind of situation that you're constantly living in, forget it. Your prejudices, they're going to be different. Your cultural background, I got something new in mind for you. So faith then takes that next step of flipping sometimes everything, everything upside down. And then we come to fear. Part of what Ananias had was fear. Obviously, I mean, here comes Paul probably with military people with him. And he's got the right to go into your home and cut you up. Or drag you back half alive to Jerusalem. 
Fear has to be part of it. And a lot of times we'll say, no, wait, 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 Lord. Now, faith moves through this fear. I've told you several times, or different ones of you have heard of events in my life where I was very much in a place of fear. Last month, Cherry and I spent three weeks or four weeks in Kenya. It was great to get home. She was nice. She was happy to relax a bit in the peace of this little place we have out on the lake. It's quiet, you know, and, and uh, didn't have, we didn't, didn't tell anybody we were coming. We, we just had it all to ourselves. We went around and began to visit some folk after a while, but it was just quiet. And one day, I walked in the back door of our house, and as I turned toward the kitchen, I heard a noise in the kitchen, and I looked up, and a great big baboon was roaring out of the kitchen because he heard me coming. I went screaming and hollering and chasing that baboon. He got out the front door. Great. A new rule in the house. We locked the, We closed the doors. We didn't normally do that. Okay. Two days later, Cherry's out on the front porch. The phone rings inside. She goes in. Leaves the door open, takes care of the phone call, turns around, sits down at the computer with her back to the front door, and another gorilla comes in. Not gorilla, uh, baboon. Come, the same old baboon comes easing back in again. Now, he enjoyed the bananas when I saw him. This time, he went in there and began to take the kitchen apart. After a bit, she heard this noise, and this lady that works for us heard the noise. They came around the corner, met each other. There he was in the kitchen. They started screaming and shouting. The old baboon goes running out another door, goes up the stairs. There's no way out. This young lady, she starts following up the stairs, screaming and hollering at him, and he's sitting there on the top of the stairs saying, don't you come any further, gal. Cherry said, get out of there. He'll kill you. So the lady comes back down, and they get out of the way, and the gorilla goes out the back. I mean, the baboon goes out the back door. Now, you ever been afraid like that? Every once in a while, something like that comes up, just real fear of something. I prayed one time on the ground. There was a gorilla standing next to me. His toes were right at my nose. He has five toes on each foot, by the way. I counted them. I was completely collapsed. Now, I'm pretty tall. It's kind of hard for me to collapse. But you get a gorilla around you, and you will collapse. And I said, Lord... If you can get me out of this one, I'll never get out of the car again. <laughs> the car was about a mile away. There are times that we have frightening experiences. That's part of living in Africa and part of the joy of it. And you've got to say, Lord, I guess in all these foolish things I get into, somehow or another, you seem to be working them out. We were up one time working with some young people in a Maasai village, just in a little tiny hut, and there were about 15 of these young people, and I'd ask them, I said, now, y'all are meeting kind of regularly. What night of the week do you meet as a group of young people? And I will definitely be here next week or whenever. They said, oh, we meet every night. Just come anytime." And they did. They had a worship service in one of their places every night. And they were really growing in the Lord. And I went in there, and we had a good time, you know. And we talked and all. And they said, we'll spend the night. And I spent the night. The next morning as I was starting to leave, the chief in the compound, whom I had met, was furious that I was working with these teenagers. I didn't know it. 
I was walking back out, had to drop down about three or 400 yards to where I had a car parked down the bottom of a hill. And I was just starting down, and some guys were walking along with me, and all of a sudden we heard this noise, a loud noise. Here he comes with his knife in one hand and Rungu in another, and he's shouting at me. He's about 20 yards back. Now, Lord, I got out of the car again. But the teenagers took him on. Now, you don't do that to an elder in an African setting. But they just stood there and dared him to come through the group. And I walked on down to the car. He apologized a month later because two of those guys sat down and witnessed to him. He had heard the gospel, but he could not believe that they would be like they were, new people. Now, there are times you're going to be afraid. I was afraid one time. I didn't know to be afraid. I was too stupid to be afraid. I was with a tribe up in northern Kenya. They were unreached. Very, very few, if any of them, were believers. And I'd been spending three or four days, and we were trying to decide, do we put a missionary in here in this group? I had a person translating for me, and we were going from, I mean, from Swahili into, uh, to, to the local Pokot language. And just easing along, trying to visit with these men. And there were about six or eight of them there. And one guy was just so friendly. And he was sitting right next to me on this log. And we were just kind of talking back and forth. But he was the one that kept really having good answers for things. And just, we were talking about their people. The interesting thing about him, right down the middle of his chest and all over on the right side, all the way across to here, he had little one-inch cuts that had been made and were sores that had just healed and were just little slices. He must have had 120 of them all the way up to here. And I looked at that and I didn't want to say anything because several of the other guys had some and I thought, okay, this is part of the tribal thing that I don't understand and I won't say anything. He got on off, but then the guy I was translating, I asked the translator, do you know what that was all about? What are all those things that guy had? He said, oh, there's one cut for every person he's ever killed. Now, that'll wake you up, won't it? And you say, Lord, I'm headed back to the car. <laughs> you know, that's, just the way, that's just the way it's going to do. We have faith. If we do, we're going to have to flip and go a different kind of direction sometime and do things that we don't think we should do and things that will get us in trouble with some of the people we know. We dare not fear but then we also need to focus. If the Lord called Ananias to go to Saul, Ananias didn't need to say, let me take a two-week holiday and go out and pray about it. We have to focus on what it is God calls us to do. It's always my turn. When the Lord says, hey, you, don't say, oh, he must be talking to who you. No, I'm sorry, that's a Swahili word, to that person there. It's always my turn. Can you imagine if you were to focus for just a short time on somebody as Ananias did, and that person became Paul the Apostle? It can happen to you. You don't know what those young people that you work with from the time they're four, five, six years old are going to be. 
You don't know when someone comes to Christ and asks you a few questions to give them some direction. And you may fear getting into that relationship at first. But what if you produce another Paul? Ananias is a real hero. Scared to death, but faithful and obedient. It's always my turn. Whenever the Lord speaks, we must obey. Let us pray together. Our Father, I pray that we continue to be brought fully awake to what you expect. I know that you say we are people of faith, and we say we are people of faith, but may we truly trust you. May we walk with you, grow with you, and come to be obedient through anything that comes up and trust that you will make it happen. We will give you the praise. We will give you the praise, Lord.